Welcome to the Macmillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkes, your host, and today our guest is Professor David Blight. The class of 1954 Professor of History at Yale University, Professor Blight is the director of the Gilder Lehrman Center for the study of slavery, resistance, and abolition at the Macmillan Center. He has written numerous books on race and American history and lectures widely on Frederick Douglass and W.E.B. Du Bois and problems in public history and American historical memory. Today we will be talking with Professor Blight about his newest book, A Slave No More, Two Men Who Escaped to Freedom, Including Their Own Narratives of Emancipation. Welcome, Professor Blight. Thank you, Marilyn. Delighted to do this. Thank you. Um, a Slave No More is remarkable in that it marks the discovery of uh, two new emancipation stories. Tell us how you came by them. Well, it was one of those uh, scholars' dreams. Uh, I never planned to write this book. These two rare autobiographies by former slaves almost literally fell into my lap. Mm -hmm. The first, authored by John Washington, was brought to me by a literary agent who was working on behalf of the manuscript's owner. The second manuscript, uh, authored by Wallace Turnage, came to my attention within the same six months independently from the Greenwich, Connecticut Historical Society. I was invited there to give a lecture and while there the director said that her staff believed they had an authentic slave narrative and would I have a look at, at, at that one. And the truth is I hadn't paid enough attention even to the first yet because it was at a moment in my life when I was moving to Yale. This was five years ago. But when I sat down with the two of them, I realized what I had were two post-Civil War autobiographies by former slaves, and their stories are largely about how they escaped uh, from slavery in the midst of the Civil War. And they're quite rare documents. We don't have very many of these. Yeah, my understanding is it's basically just a, a handful of um, um, emancipation stories. Well, there, there are really two parts of the genre of slave narratives. There's the pre-Civil War genre mm -hmm. uh, from roughly about 1745 until the end of the American Civil War. We have approximately 65 autobiographical treatments by former slaves published in English. Mm -hmm. But from the end of the Civil War until about the 1920s, when the last of American slaves were dying off who wrote about themselves, we have only about 55. Mm -hmm. Uh, some of these are quite short. There were columns in newspapers. Uh, one of them is very famous, Booker T. Washington's uh, book called Up From Slavery in 1901. But what makes these two documents so extraordinary is that these had never been published. They had never been through any kind of editing or filtering process. And they arrived in my lap uh, as raw pieces of writing, in one of the two cases possibly never seen by anyone except the author's uh, closest family members. Uh, and even in the other case, it hadn't been seen by uh, anyone beyond family members except possibly a few people. So they arrived uh, without anyone having touched them. And uh, my challenge then was to decide what to do with them. Would I simply publish them and write an introduction? Or would I try to uh, uncover uh, the lives of these heretofore unknown, um, seemingly ordinary American slaves who nevertheless 
1873 and the other undated, but probably in the 1880s, sat down and decided to write up their story, especially the story of their emancipation. Uh, so I did indeed uh, ultimately publish them in this book, mm -hmm. but I also, with the help of a tremendous genealogist at the um, New York Public Library, Christine McKay, was able to locate enough, and in some cases uh, a lot, of documentation, uh, particularly about their post-war lives, so that I was able in the end to try to write, in effect, a kind of dual biography of two otherwise heretofore unknown mm -hmm. American slaves and to write a book that is essentially about the process, the story of how emancipation of four million slaves actually happened in the midst of the chaos and disorder of the Civil War. Let's talk about the actual journals themselves. What did they look like? Um, you know, were they pieces of paper? Was yeah. it a bound? Yeah. And was it um, difficult to de decipher at all, the writing? Um, it was not difficult to decipher the writing, and it was actually not difficult to authenticate them. That actually was the easy part. Mm -hmm. um, in the case of John Washington, <clears throat> His manuscript survived in his family. It survived actually with a granddaughter who lived uh, to be quite elderly in the 1970s. Her name was Evelyn Washington Easterly. And she was living in Massachusetts, but before she could do anything with it, um, she died. But she had left it to a very close friend, a woman named Alice Jackson Stewart. And Mrs. Stewart worked with the manuscript and collected a lot of documentation, including fabulous family photographs. Uh, but she too became elderly and in the 1980s she died. And she left the manuscript to her son, uh, who is uh, an African-American retired judge in Boston. His name is Julian Houston. And he's now the owner of the manuscript. In Washington's case, he wrote it on essentially loose paper. In the other case, Wallace Turnage, he actually wrote it in a leather-bound stationery book that he bought at a stationery shop in Lower Manhattan because it still has the insignia of the shop on it. His survives in an even more extraordinary way. It was preserved by his daughter. He had three surviving children. And his daughter, whose name was Lydia Turnage Connolly, lived to be 99 years old. She died in Greenwich, Connecticut in 1984, having moved there because she married an, um, an Irish immigrant laborer named Tom Connolly. She worked as a maid in a hotel, and he is a porter. They were poor. But when she died, she had one friend left in the world. She died in a nursing home in 1984. And she had one friend left, an elderly woman named Gladys Watt, well, Mrs. Watt, it turns out, kept one box of material from her friend for 18 years until one day in 2003 she watched a public television documentary called Unchained Memories, which is a film about the WPA oral history narratives done in the Great Depression. She watched that film, and as the people at the Greenwich Historical Society tell it, it was almost literally the next day she called them up and said, I may have something that would interest you. They sent someone out, and indeed she did. What she simply had was one box, and in that box 
was and is a black clamshell box, clamshell in the sense that it has a top that you take on and off into which this narrative fits perfectly. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, he wrote it, as I said, on blue line paper in this stationary book. It's as though his daughter was preserving it either as such a precious thing or possibly because she was hiding it because we do know now that Lydia was passing for white. Uh, she explained her tan complexion, according to her surviving friend, by saying she was Portuguese. Now, I don't know exactly why she preserved it that way, but it was beautifully preserved. And the only other thing in the box were five photographs, four of them of Wallace Turnage, all of which he had taken, as a good working class guy would, in studios in New York City. Uh, from somewhere in the 1880s until probably the latest one, about 1910. And then one photograph of Lydia herself, the daughter. This is all we had to go on in Wallace Turnage's case when we started to research his life. Five photos and the narrative. But through census manuscripts, city directories, bank records, church records, a lot of newspaper research, and a lot of other material, we were able, able to uncover not only a fair amount about his life as a slave, but also of his post-war life. And in Wallace Turnage's case, he lived until 1916 as a common laborer in New York City. Married three times, two wives died. He had seven children, three of whom lived to adulthood. And in John Washington's case, he lived till 1918. Uh, he and his wife Annie lived most of their adult lives in Washington, D.C. They had five sons, and as I said, it was through uh, the daughter of his youngest son that this uh, manuscript survived. Let's talk about John Washington and Wallace Turnage, the two gentlemen um, whose narratives you came by. John Washington was born in Fredericksburg, Virginia in 1838. His father was a white man, though he never named him. If he knew who his father was, he didn't tell us. And in fact, the greatest frustration in my research on this is that I have never been able to determine his paternity, nor even how he got the name Washington. One speculation I have is that he made it up, that if you're in central Virginia, be a Washington. Why not? There are lots of them. He grows up in a town, largely, a city, Fredericksburg, Virginia. He, uh, his mother, by the way, was a slave woman named Sarah, who was literate and taught him his first alphabet and his first letters. In that sense, he was a very lucky guy. Uh, he's very uh, talented. He's skilled. He's highly valued by his owner by the 1850s. When he was a teenager, they began to hire him out, which was a relatively common practice, especially in urban slavery. He was hired out to do odd jobs. He was often hired out for a year at a time. At one point, he was hired out to a tobacco factory, where he said he, he actually really enjoyed the routine of the work, in part because he got to learn all the black work songs. He also fell in love. He fell crazy in love, because among the documents that have survived with John Washington are extraordinarily rare love letters and fragments of a diary. And most of that diary is actually about his courtship of a young free black woman named Annie Gordon, whom he will later marry. 
Now he bided his time and John's escape came at the very first arrival of the Union Army on the Rappahannock River in Fredericksburg in April of 1862. He uh, describes an, an extraordinary scene. He's working at a hotel in Fredericksburg called the Shakespeare. And he was, again, a highly valued uh, worker. He was, he was sort of a steward. The owner would give him the payroll to pay off the, the slaves who took the money home to their masters. But at that moment, all the white people are evacuating Fredericksburg. And he describes taking the dozen or so black workers up on the roof of the hotel where they could see across the river. And he said they could see the gleam of the Yankees' bayonets. And then he brought all of his fellow black workers down into the kitchen and he poured a round of drinks. And then he held a toast with his fellow slave workers. And the toast, he said, was to the Yankees. And then he simply walked down to the river. He witnessed the formal surrender of Fredericksburg. And then he tells us he walked approximately a mile upriver in the direction, he said, of the sound of a Union band. And then he crossed the river, he said, at Ficklin's Mill. And the old stone ruins of that mill are still there, so I know exactly where he crossed. And he was liberated after getting out of his rowboat by a captain in the 21st New York Volunteers. And he said at the moment they told him he could be free if he wished to, he said he thanked God out loud and laughed. And then John Washington spent the rest of that summer of 1862 as a camp hand, a servant, and, a, and for quite a bit of it as a mess cook for the Union Army all over Northern Virginia. And he dates his um, arrival in Washington, D.C. as part of the first big wave of freedmen into the capital as September 1st, 1862. Frustratingly, his narrative, though, ends that fall. The last line in his narrative is a sentence about his wages. He says, I'm working two jobs. One is bottling liquor and the other is working on the wharves. And I make a dollar twenty-five a week. Those were his last words in the narrative. And of course, you want to grab him at that point and say, no, don't stop. Who are you? Where did you go? What happened to you? I first found a shred of evidence of him, a good shred, uh, in late 1863 in a directory. He's living on 19th Street in Washington, D.C. at an address that is today Constitution Hall, about two and a half blocks southwest of the White House. And at that point, he had his wife, Annie, their newborn child, his mother, Sarah, and his 68-year-old grandmother, Molly, living with him. Exactly how he got them out of Virginia, I don't know, because he didn't tell us. Now, in Wallace Turnage's case, uh, his escape, if anything, is even more dramatic. He was born on a little tobacco farm in North Carolina, uh, near Snow Hill. And uh, he, too, had a white father. Uh, and a slave mother. His mother's name was Courtney. He knew exactly who his father was. His father's name was Sylvester Brown Turnage, and, and Wallace named his father in every document the rest of his life, as though he was saying, I know who my father was. But he was sold at the age of 14 by his indebted owner to a Richmond, Virginia slave trader. And thankfully, Wallace names a lot of names and places uh, and dates mm -hmm. in his narrative because it really helped me out in finding him. 
He was owned for about six months by the largest slave trader in Richmond, whose name was Hector Davis. He lived in a three-story slave jail for, uh, uh, from the winter to late spring of 1860. His job while there was uh, preparing slaves in what was called the dressing room to take them out to the auction floor. And one day he was simply told, uh, boy, you're in the auction. And he was sold to an Alabama cotton planter named James Chalmers. And 72 hours later, he found himself uh, on a huge cotton operation near Pickensville, Alabama, which is right on the Mississippi border in central west Alabama. Most of Turnage's narrative after that is the story of his five attempts during the Civil War to escape, the first four of which were over into Mississippi and northward, where he was trying to make it to the Union Army, which controlled northern Mississippi by 1862. And then finally, his frustrated master, who kept coming after him and retrieving him, uh, got fed up, and he took him down to Mobile, Alabama, uh, in the summer of 1863 and sold him at the Mobile Slave Jail Auction House uh, for $2,000. He was 17 years old. And he lived the next roughly 15 months as the slave of a merchant in Mobile. Again, he named that merchant Collier Minge, which was a good help to me in figuring out his life in Mobile. And one day he was, uh, he was driving his master's carriage. Uh, it would have been late July of 64, and he crashed the carriage. The harness broke, the carriage broke, the horse got away. He went home, and his master and his mistress were so angry at him that they really punished him. They took him down to the slave jail and ordered 30 lashes for him uh, with the, the, the worst uh, contraption they used to beat slaves. They stripped him naked and strung him up on a, on a bar on the wall. And at the end of these 30 lashes, he was standing there bleeding. And his master said, walk home. But instead of walking home, Wallace simply walked out of Mobile. He walked right through the roughly 10,000 Confederate troops uh, who were encamped all around Mobile. And then the rest of his narrative is the extraordinary story of his three-week, about 27-mile trek down the western shore of Mobile Bay through a colossal swamp. It's called the Fowl River Estuary today. He traversed three rivers, a huge swamp. And finally, he reached the mouth of, uh, out at the mouth of Mobile Bay. And he describes himself uh, barely alive. He'd been half-starved for days on end. But he said one day he prayed especially hard, and the tide brought in an old rowboat. He tipped over the rowboat, grabbed a plank of wood, he said, and he began to row out into Mobile Bay. And then comes his most dramatic moment of his narrative, and you can almost feel him on the page trying to capture that moment. Uh, he describes how a wave is about to capsize his boat, and then he said he heard oars, and the oars he heard were a Union gunboat. And in that gunboat were about eight sailors. They told him to jump in, and he did. And as Wallace sat down in their boat, according to his testimony, he said, the Yankee sailors looked at me, and they were struck silent. And I don't doubt they were. They then rowed him to a sand island fort. They clothed him, fed him. Uh, put him in a tent overnight, 
the first acts of kindness he'd ever experienced from white people in his 17 years. And then the next day they, they rode him over to Dauphin Island, which is the huge big sandbar island at the mouth of Mobile Bay. And there in Fort Gaines in late August of 1864, and that old fort is still there, he was interrogated by the Union commanding general of the entire region, a man named Gordon Granger probably because he was an escaped slave from Mobile and they wanted intelligence. And in that interrogation, Granger gave him simply two choices. He could join a black regiment that they were organizing or he could become a servant to a white officer. And Wallace chose to be the servant. He never told us why, but I have good speculation on that. He probably felt that he had simply suffered enough and he was choosing a kind of security. He then served out the rest of the war as the mess cook for a captain in a Maryland regiment whose name was Junius Turner. He is with that regiment when it captured Mobile in April of 65. He was with that regiment guarding Confederate prisoners in New Orleans after the war. And he was with that regiment as they traveled across the United States and were mustered out in Baltimore in August of 1865. Turnage then lived about three years in Baltimore, and then I began to find evidence of him. And the first marvelous evidence I found was the 1870 census. And I found him living with his mother and his four half-siblings in the 300 block of Thompson Street in what we today call Greenwich Village, which was then known as Little Africa. It was a community of about 2,000 former slaves who had moved to New York City. And it was in New York City or across the river for part of it in Jersey City where Wallace lived out the rest of his life as a uh, drayman, uh, bartender. At one point he called himself a glass blower. Uh, he worked as a night watchman. He worked in all kinds of common labor jobs. But as I said, he also went to a studio and had his photograph taken four times. He also joined the Abyssinian Baptist Church, the most famous black church in New York. And he joined a black fraternal order called the Hamilton Lodge of Oddfellows, and he is buried in the collective burial plot of that fraternity in Cypress Hill Cemetery in Brooklyn. So this is the saga of these two men in brief, uh, one escaping, as you can see, in a town early in the war even before the Emancipation Proclamation. The other uh, escaping to the Union Navy uh, later in the war under very different circumstances. And what it allowed me to do through these two windows on emancipation is to tell the story, uh, both in microcosm and macrocosm, of how emancipation actually came about for hundreds of thousands of American slaves before the war ended. Um, one in, one in this case to the Union Navy and one to the Union Army. So how long did it take you to pull together all of this information? How long was um, the writing of the book? How long did it take you? I suppose it took me about three years mm -hmm. from start to finish uh, accumulating the information. It was frustrating at times mm -hmm. trying to find them. There sure. were big holes in their lives I couldn't complete as in the case of John Washington's father. Uh, but we just kept looking and kept looking. Uh, and then I, I decided ultimately that I wanted this to be a, a, a sort of uh, dual biography. 
uh, I was particularly interested in telling their post-war lives the best I could. I wanted to be able to say something through their stories of what actually happened to some mm -hmm. of, <clears throat> of American slaves who became free in the war, uh, lived in cities, uh, in, in some cases migrated north, uh, became part of the first generation of an urban black working class, developed families, joined churches, were in fraternal orders, and in John Washington's case was president of the Black Sunday School Union in Washington for 10 years. Uh, and I found enough information, a, a remarkable amount of information, that I was able to do that. I also found out a lot about their children uh, and what happened to them, the kinds of lives they lived. Um, and quite remarkably, um, by continuing to dig and dig and dig in obituaries, we also finally found a living descendant. Uh, we knew there was no likelihood of living descendants in the case of Wallace Turnage because all three of his children died childless. But we knew there was a good chance uh, with John Washington. And by details I will spare you, um, approximately a year ago, we found the living granddaughter of John Washington. She was then 89, she's now 90 years old. Her name is Ruth Washington. Uh, we found her through an obituary of her cousin, and she lives today in a retirement trailer park village in Tampa, Florida. And about a year ago right now, I had the out-of-body experience of calling uh, a nearly 90-year-old woman one night to tell her I was about to publish the autobiography of her grandfather. The remarkable thing was that she knew absolutely nothing about her grandfather. Uh, which was not unusual for African-American families uh, at the turn of the 20th century and into the early 20th century. Her father was John Washington, Jr., but uh, her grandfather, the author of the document, died the year she was born, and she, she's told me now many times that her father never talked about the past. She had no knowledge whatsoever that her grandparents had ever been slaves. Uh, and she had never even met them. And her grandmother lived uh, about nine years after she was born and never met her. But we've had this remarkable experience now of being able to show her, her a big part of her family's history. And I've even had her at now two public events with me uh, where she speaks along with me and even signs the books with me. And I suppose a lesson in that is that one should never say never and also that the past, especially this past in America, our past with slavery, the Civil War, emancipation and its aftermath, is not that far back there. We have living grandchildren. Uh, some of those living grandchildren are this week, next week, uh, facing a chance to vote for an African-American for president. And in some ways, I can't wait to call up Ruth and ask her what it felt like. Wow, remarkable stories. Thank you so much for being here with us today and, and sharing your research with us. Well, thank you, Marilyn. I enjoyed it. For more information about Professor Blight and, of course, his new book, A Slave No More, please visit our website at yale.edu backslash Macmillan Report. Be sure to join us again next week for another episode of the Macmillan Report, made possible through funding from the Whitney and Betty Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale.